Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Rick Banks. I'm a law professor at Stanford and one of the co-hosts of this weekly program. We offer listeners an in-depth analysis of issues of the day, which are either pressing of long-term importance or sometimes just interesting. This conference call is live and unedited. Part of what makes this program unique is that our experts are given only six minutes to present. That's right, only six minutes. The presentations are followed by a lively Q&A period during which we pose questions to the experts, and they pose questions and challenges to each other. The result is an unusually informative, provocative, and entertaining discussion. What happens next is designed to engage a wide array of views. We are not aiming to promote any particular viewpoint so much as to provide listeners with the information and perspective to better understand some of the developments that are shaping our world. Due to the undeniable challenges that confront our society, sometimes our experts' assessments are sobering, even somber. To balance that mood, we end each program with a one-minute note of optimism from each speaker. Now, I'm pleased to turn it over to Larry Bernstein, who will introduce the speakers. Thanks, Rick. This week's topics include the use of masks, presidential election litigation, the resilience of cities after catastrophes, the fine print in the terms and conditions of contracts, what to do about snoring, and why we sleep and dream. Our lead-off speaker today is Dr. Monica Gandhi, who is a professor of medicine in infectious disease at the University of California, San Francisco. Monica recently wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine about the benefits of using a mask during COVID. We will learn today about how masks can reduce the viral load when you're exposed to COVID. Our second speaker is Stephen Mulroy, who is a law professor at the University of Memphis. Stephen will discuss President Trump's election litigation options in the battleground states. Carl Smith is our third speaker. Carl is a history professor at Northwestern, and he recently authored a book entitled Chicago's Great Fire, The Destruction and Resurrection of an Iconic American City. This work discusses the resilience of a city after a catastrophe. In 1871, most of Chicago was completely destroyed by fire, but it rose from the ashes with incredible speed. Hopefully, this will be illustrative of America's recovery after COVID. Margaret Jane Redeen is a law professor at Michigan and is the author of the book Boilerplate, The Fine Print, Vanishing Rights and the Rule of Law. She will be discussing the enforceability of the terms and conditions that we all agree to each day and how should the law handle contractual terms that nobody reads or even understands. Today we have a special co-host, my college buddy Mitch Feynman, who organized this week's sleep segment, will introduce our next two speakers. Steve Burton, who works at Snap Diagnostics, where he specializes in snoring and sleep apnea. We will learn why we snore and what we can do about it. And our final speaker today is Rafael Paleo, who is a Stanford professor in sleep sciences and medicine, and he will teach us about why we sleep and dream. Rafael has a new book coming out entitled How to Sleep, The New Science-Based Solutions for Sleeping Through the Night. All right, that ends my introduction for today's speakers. We want to engage our audience. If you have any questions for our experts, please feel free to email me at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com. Don't be shy. Since the beginning of What Happens Next, I have commented each month on the Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Report because it is the best leading indicator for the economy. The report issued this last Friday was unbelievable. 
The BLS monitors the labor market using two different surveys. The establishment survey asked large firms directly if they hired new workers. Using this method, employment rose for the month by 900,000 jobs in the private sector, while the government laid off 250,000 temporary census workers. This private sector increase is about five times a normal month. The household survey uses a phone call to discover if anyone in the home has changed their employment status. The household survey has a much higher variance than the establishment, but is more accurate with regard to hiring by smaller firms, which is where the action is right now. Small firms were more likely to fire their workers at the outset of the pandemic and are now rehiring. The household survey showed a mind-blowing increase in employment in the month of October of two and a quarter million jobs. And year-on-year employment is now down by just eight and a half million. So we had a 21% retracement on unemployment in just the month of October. The dramatic improvement in employment has been across the board by gender, race, and educational achievement. Female and male employment is now down equally over the pandemic. I would have thought that female employment would have fallen by more, as I expected moms to bear the greater burden of caring for school-aged children who are stuck at home due to virtual schooling, but this is not the case. The hardest-hit industry is leisure and hospitality, with over 2 million unemployed and represents over 20% of all unemployed workers. Many of these workers will need to wait for a vaccine to be rehired. The second hardest sector is clothing retail shops, as consumers are reluctant to buy new clothes when working from home. As incredible as this may sound, several industries now have higher employment than before the pandemic. Employment is up in the high-tech and scientific sectors, as well as in the retail trade in building materials, auto parts, and online and general merchandise stores. It seems Amazon and Walmart are adding staff rapidly. In summary, this was an incredibly strong employment report on Friday. I want to encourage you to check out our new What Happens Next website. All episodes of What Happens Next are currently available on our website, whathappensinsixminutes.com. You can stream and download full episodes or alternatively each guest six-minute talk along with a Q&A. You'll be able to subscribe to our show in iTunes podcasts or on Spotify. If you get a chance, please rate our podcasts so that it, it will help with our social media. All right, let's get started. I'm now going to introduce our first guest, Dr. Monica Gandhi. Dr. Gandhi is a professor of infectious disease and the associate division chief and clinical operations education of the Division of HIV, Infectious Diseases, and Global Medicine at the University of California at San Francisco. Monica, please go ahead. Hi. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about facial masking in the setting of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. And there's actually been controversy around this, but um, I think that there's enough evidence at this point that there's um, a lot of epidemiologic evidence that putting on a mask has decreased transmission around the world. And what I mean by that is the CDC on April 3rd recommended to the American public that they wear cloth face coverings or any sort of face covering when out in public. And this was followed extremely unevenly across the United States. The way that masking was commented upon to our public and the way it was messaged was by the president uh, at the time, President Trump, and he um, doubted the efficacy of mask wearing, so said this was completely voluntary and that he himself was not going to do it. Because it was messaged in that way, 
there was a lot of unevenness around the country. Some places were masking, some people were, some places were not. And because of that, we almost had natural experiments in the United States that showed us that places that masked, places where the public masked, had lower rates of transmission than those who didn't. For example, last week in the New York Times, there was a report from Kansas. And in Kansas, the state had issued a statewide mask mandate, but every county could choose for themselves if they decided to enforce that mask mandate for their county populations. The counties that enforced mask mandates had 50% lower transmission of COVID-19 than the counties that did not. And there's been study after study like this in the United States. There was a study in the Boston healthcare system that once we started universally masking in hospitals, that rates of COVID-19 transmission went down. There was a study in state mandates that the states that have mass mandates over states that don't have lower rates of COVID transmission. And this actually lists of increasing number of studies that show us that mass help and transmission have been published uh, since the beginning of the pandemic because we've only, only been a natural experiment here in the United States of masking versus not. What my uh, co-authors and I have been thinking about is not just transmission with COVID-19 and facial masking, but the idea that if you wear a mask and you're out and you do get exposed, could you, are you less likely to get less severe disease? And what I mean by that is that 1918 was the last time that the public was asked to mask for a massive pandemic, global pandemic. So we don't have a lot of great data on what makes this disease with COVID-19 severe versus not. But the bizarre part about this particular virus, COVID-19, is that some people are totally well, they're asymptomatic. In fact, 40% of the population, if they get it, are asymptomatic. And some people can get extremely ill, obviously, and die. And what we are interested in in our group is what are all the factors that if you do get infected will increase that rate of asymptomatic infection so that we have less severe disease while we're waiting for a vaccine. And in fact, vaccines even are going to be studying not just reducing transmission, but reducing severity of disease. Vaccines, their secondary outcome in their trials are reducing severity of disease. So we have been observing sort of epidemiologically over time that settings that mask consistently, and I mean either hospital care settings or food processing plants where we started masking consistently or cruise ship outbreaks where people were masking versus not, that in those settings, the rate of asymptomatic infection has gone up from 40% to much higher, to 80%, 95%, fewer people become ill. And so then we started looking into, okay, well, what could be that reasoning there? And at least in animal models with this virus, but importantly, many other viruses, the less virus you get in, the less sick you get. And so the idea is that a mask blocks virus from getting in. And then even if you do get infected, you get a little bit in, your immune system is able to manage it better, and you're less likely to get sick. 
this is a hypothesis. This is what we're exploring. We're exploring by a number of different studies to try to look at this. For example, just this weekend, we're looking at mask mandates across the United States and how they are associated with less severity of disease. Um, we have been looking at other countries where there's a lot less severity of disease with SARS-CoV-2, this virus, if, if the countries are masking consistently. And then people are looking at more animal data with this virus. So I think I can say at this point that facial masking, though it's quite controversial still in the United States, and I hope some of that controversy will calm down, um, it is it has been shown, at least in many settings around this planet, as we've been struggling through the COVID-19 pandemic, that it reduces transmission, seems to be associated with less severity of disease. There are a lot of models that show that wearing a mask will block that virus from getting in and out, and there's some incredible physical scientists who are showing us these, this data. And I think facial masking has to be considered a pillar of pandemic control. And so let's see what happens in this country going forward. I'm hopeful, very hopeful, that we're going to have more consistent messaging around this particular pillar of pandemic control, which has almost become a symbol, in a way, of your politics, of wearing a mask versus not wearing a mask, believing in masks versus not. And I'm hoping that we're going to get to just thinking about the medical aspects and the studies around this and um, have more consistent facial masking patterns and how and I truly hope that that will help this pandemic calm down in the United States. Thanks, Monica. Um, we're going to go straight to Q&A with you. Um, why? You, you mentioned you thought that only 40 percent of the cases in general are asymptomatic. Um, why do you think it's that number? Um, I, had, I had heard that it was much more. Yeah, that's actually a great question. Um, I don't know if we know that exact proportion. However, the CDC on July 10th put out a statement that they think the rate of not having symptoms at all with this infection is 40%. And where did they get that particular statistic? Up till that point, till July 10th, there were many studies where you test a group of people. You have to mass test everyone because you don't know who has symptoms yeah. or not. So, for example, mass test a neighborhood, like in the Mission District in San Francisco, or mass test a nursing home, or mass test inpatients, or mass test a group of people. Follow them out for two weeks because you have to make sure they don't get symptoms because then they become the word pre-symptomatic, not asymptomatic. And putting all this data together, and there was an Annals of Internal Medicine review on this, it looked like up to that point, um, the rate of asymptomatic infection was deemed at 40%. And that's the statistic that's quoted at this moment. You're absolutely right that it, that was July 10th. If we look now, could there be populations where that rate of asymptomatic infection is higher? Uh, it seems so. In fact, that's, that's part of the evidence that we're wondering about uh, with masking is that in outbreaks in food processing plants, for example, where everyone's masking, 500 people got infected in an outbreak in a Tyson chicken plant and also an Oregon seafood processing plant. They were all masking, and the rate of asymptomatic infection was 95%. We have a paper under review where these three companies Everyone was masking, there was testing done, and people had the infection, but the rate of asymptomatic infection was 99%. So you are right 
that this number is all over the place. And what is one of those factors that could be driving up the rate of asymptomatic infection? Keeping away from each other, social distancing, and wearing a mask. And that could be reducing, even if you get infected, the amount of virus you get in and driving up that rate of um, asymptomatic infection. So, so I think, not, I think that is actually, that. when I read your paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, I took that as, as, the, as, as your key point. And let me articulate what I, what I learned. And it's that, um, that masks may not be very good at preventing exposure. What masks may be good at is minimizing the viral load. And it may be the viral load which creates the asymptomatic or the severity of the disease. Is that fair? Yes. So I think if we think about masks, um, there are different types of masks. So an N95 mask, that really strong, tightly fitting mask um, with lots of layer, you know, sort of barriers to getting in virus, probably blocks out virus the most. And that's used in hospitals. We've sort of restricted that to healthcare workers, and it's also super uncomfortable. So cloth face mask coverings, which have been recommended by the WHO and the CDC, they don't block out all viral particles. And I would say there's some very important uh, physical scientists who are estimating 75%, 85% that they block out, and some of this data will be coming. And if you block out the majority of virus but not all, getting a little bit of virus in, if you get infected and, you, and you're not likely to get sick, then that's driving up the rate of asymptomatic infection. And it's a hypothesis, but um, we've been seeing it in what is called observational studies. Can you prove it? Well, you can't give people a little bit of virus, a lot of virus. You can't do that experiment. That is unethical in human experimentation. But with other viruses, they've done that, less deadly viruses. They've given people a little bit of influenza, a lot of influenza, and they get less sick with a little bit and more sick with a lot. So would, you describe, that, would you describe that as like a live vaccine? A live virus vaccine is what we're really doing. You know, when well, you get, I just I mean, is it really like that old yeah. classic study back in the, the cowpox? You know, when they they yeah, that, so, or maybe maybe it was even alive, a little bit of smallpox. I don't even know how it really worked. It um, was. It was both actually that the. Um, the way to vaccinate people against smallpox with this deadly virus before we had vaccines was giving someone a little bit of a related virus or even the actual virus, like a scab from someone who had um, smallpox, and then you get a mild illness, and then you get immunity. Now, that, that process called variolation is not... Um, ethical now. Like, we would never, ever propound that people get deliberately sick. However, people are out. People are working. Essential workers are working. Hospital care workers are working. People in grocery stores are working. People are out. They have to be out. There is not, not everyone is privileged enough to be able to stay home. And because of that, the question is, as people are out and doing their functions, um, are they being exposed to a little bit of virus and getting um, getting the infection, but they don't even know it? And that's that's the question. We have we have a lot more to work on, but that is exactly the hypothesis that you just said. Rick, did you want to ask a question? Well, uh, Monica, this is, is is very limited. Let me say the the one thing that that troubles me a little is you you mentioned N95 as being very uncomfortable, um, which. Uh, you know, it's not been my experience in, in wearing the N95, but let me put that aside and say, uh, Monica, how do we um, get the message across, though, to people that, 
that mask wearing is uh, is, is essential uh, to fighting this virus. Uh, that how is it that we get beyond the unevenness that we've had with masks? So, do you have any ideas about that? Yeah, I do actually. I, I I mean, I think it is essential, and I'm really become convinced of that. Um, especially when I look at the Asia countries, and what I mean is, you know, Thailand and Vietnam and South Korea and Hong Kong and um, Taiwan and Japan, where there hasn't been this um, aspect of uneven messaging and their rates of severe illness have been so low. And they have been open. We never, we don't recognize how how much they are out uh, doing their job functions. Uh, we don't tend to focus on those countries enough, um, but they have been open for months. Um, so, I mean, definitely avoiding large crowds and still keeping with many precautions, but there's a lot more openness of that society than here. So my ideas for increasing mask wearing is, um, is number one, mask modeling by leaders. Uh, I think it, it makes a huge difference when uh, a leader is modeling that they believe in this uh, pillar of pandemic control by wearing that mask um, right before they, then they can take it off as they're speaking if they're enough away from people. But that had not been done um, uh, with, a, with President Trump and his administration. Second is mask provision. I think in essential healthcare worker settings, in essential grocery stores, for example, in meat processing plants, in places where people are closer and you're asking people to wear masks, providing them with masks. And what I mean is, by that is, what you just said about the N95 mask is interesting. The other aspect of our uneven response here is we have like a bunch of masks, like people can grab this and put this over their face. And, you know, there has been standardization of the type of mask that people wear in many Asian countries. Taiwan is a great example. Surgical masks, which are quite tightly bound, they have multiple layers, and they have electrostatic charges that block virus. These were mass-produced in Taiwan on March 6th. Taiwan, on March 6th, mass-produced masks gave them out to their public, and they've had fewer than a dozen deaths from coronavirus, 23 million people country. So it is important to say that there have been there are responses where you mass produce a standard product and you provide them to the public. And that has also not been part of our response. We are all over the place with the type of mask. So I'm also in favor of standardization. I also, when, when you look at people who are wearing masks, it seems to me that um, you see people who take it, I'll call it seriously, and people who don't. You know, when you see people with their mask kind of below their nose or even on their chin, um, where it's obviously doing little to no good. Um, I think you need more than just wearing it. There's a, a proper way to wear it and an improper p- way to wear it. Um, how do we kind of persuade them on that? Well, so, I mean, it's really the big holes in the face or <laughs> the two nostrils and the mouth. Um, that's where the where that's where you can get virus in and that's where you put virus out. Anything else, skin and even eyes, um, very little. The skin has no transmission and... Um, eyes, uh, there's been, it, it's, it's quite difficult actually to get um, COVID through your eyes. So it really is your two nostrils and your mouth. So you've got to cover those two nostrils and mouth because you could be putting out virus even when you're well and also cover them for your protection. And, and uh, just one more quick thing. When, at the beginning of the crisis, yeah. we were told not to open up our Amazon packages to leave them aside for three days. Was that just complete nonsense? It wasn't nonsense. It was an understandable 
fear of what could be going on. This is spreading so fast. It's so different than SARS. Why it's cousin in 2003? What's going on? And so there was, and, and also you could culture virus from surfaces, which is also very confusing. But by the way, you can do that with many, many viruses. And so it was an overabundance of caution to say, fomites and surfaces could cover this. Let's, let's do this. At this point, this long into the pandemic, um, most experts are not concerned about surfaces spreading virus. And in fact, you can see that if that was truly a concern, we'd be recommending a different form of protection for our hands and, you know, gloves and things that we do in the hospital. None of this has been part of the pandemic response. So, so yeah, we used to also, it, we were rubbing ourselves with alcohol. We were, you know, constantly entered a room. We were soaping ourselves down. We were very worried about touching the, you know, the button in the elevator. Are those, are all those concerns now completely a tertiary and our complete focus should be on making sure that our masks are tightly fit? Yes. So essentially, um, hand hygiene is absolutely part of the response, but, uh, and hand hygiene is always a good thing to do. It's always been part of uh, reducing spread of respiratory viruses, but right, like going to extreme lengths to disinfect the whole room or sort of, you know, like letting people breathe in chemicals all the time from disinfectant. I mean, these, we, we need to start thinking long-term and right. A lot of those concerns have gone away. Um, and again, it's just because you can culture a virus from a surface does not mean that's how it's spread. And I think we just have had a bunch of scientists getting into the mix, you know, understandably, but physical scientists and engineers, and there's just been a plethora of people. You can get things published quite quickly. Like it's, it's, it's kind of an amazing time where everyone's in the mix, but that can be really confusing, right, for the public. And so a respiratory virus is spread from what comes out of your nose and what you get into your nose and mouth, right? And so that is the main root of spread of this virus. You are correct. You, you mentioned um, in, the, in the pregame that the knives are out between scientists right now and that there's um, a lot of disagreement and a lot of emotion associated with uh, what to recommend or what science we have out of this, given we're at the early stages. Why do you think in the scientific community, you mentioned um, this differences, I'll call it in the political community, but what, what's going on with it within the scientific community that the experts themselves have the knives out for each other? You know, I have watched that with, with wonder and um, I think it's a profoundly emotional time and there's a lot of polemics and polemics means that people, um, you know, science is not a fixed thing. It never has been. People were killed for, um, you know, saying the earth was flat or uh, that the earth, um, you know, is not the center of the universe. Science is never a fixed thing. As uh, data evolves, things change. But right now, this is a brand new pandemic everyone has their personal biases. A personal bias of a medical doctor like myself is that the, um, the effects of the economy and job loss and all this painful breakdown and loneliness and social isolation, I treat people living with HIV, um, is profoundly difficult. And it makes my daily bias in my head think about how can I let people see each other, but keep safe. Like that's my bias as an MD. A PhD um, epidemiologist who doesn't have that experience maybe have sat in our house for a long time over the last uh, 11 months. And that is profoundly influencing their bias about what they 
choose to believe about this virus, right? Like it is, it is amazing to me that every human being has bias. Every single person in this country has made a decision about um, what they think about this virus. And because the information is so new, you can go this way and you can go that way, and you're not thinking in a nuanced, nuanced, holistic fashion, putting all the data together. We also have data coming from all sources, some of which is totally confusing and doesn't actually make sense and coming from a bunch of scientific fields. So we haven't settled on this. And because of that, there's yelling. Yeah, there's yelling, there's anger, there's polemics, there's um, an amazing time where people are, uh, uh, you're either on this side or you're this side, you hate masks, you think masks are good. Like, it's, none of that is actually, like, based on truth. Everyone is, is based on their personal emotion around this virus. I will tell you that this has happened many, many times, right? Like, um, the, in the mid-1800s in Paris with the cholera pandemic, there was a bunch of scientists that said, this is fecal-oral, which it is. It was spread through sewage and, and fecal-oral. And the other ones were like, this is spread by people being around each other. Shut everything down. And there was different scientists on different sides and they were screaming at each other and no one was paying attention to the impact on the poor, which both sides were hurting because shutting everything down wasn't good for the poor. And then also just saying that the dirty poor, the ones who are spreading cholera also wasn't good for the poor. So there was just polemics. And um, we will look back at this time in history and realize how much we screamed at each other. Monica, thank you very much. Um, our next speaker is Stephen Mulroy. Stephen is a professor of law at the University of Memphis Law School. Uh, Stephen, tell us about the 2020 presidential election litigation. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. There were a lot more legal questions and perplexing legal questions a week ago than there are today, and simply because Joe Biden keeps putting more and more states into the win column for himself, I think that narrows some of the paths for legal challenges. But there are legal challenges still remaining. The Trump campaign has filed a number of different lawsuits, pursuing a number of different legal theories in a number of different states. Let me try to um, categorize them and also talk about one other potential avenue involving state legislatures that is at least theoretically available to him. I'll start with the bottom line, which is that it appears that Biden has too big a lead in too many states for any of these vehicles to be very likely. But, of course, this is 2020. You can't rule anything out. With respect to the legal challenges, the court challenges, there are four main categories of things going on here. The first and most promising for Trump would be challenges to those states that have extended the deadlines for receipt of absentee ballots because of the pandemic or who have in other ways altered the legislatively prescribed rules for mail balloting in response to the pandemic. I'll return to that in a second. The second category are just allegations of fraud. And we have heard a lot of those allegations recently, but there haven't been any, any evidence presented. There's no substantiation for those. So that seems like a long shot. And again, you would have to have enough evidence to remove sizable leads in numerous states in order to actually bring Biden below 270 electoral college votes. A third category is complaints about uh, lack of access for Republican poll observers to the counting process. Um, that's A, sort of moot at this point, and B, to the extent that you prevail on that, the remedy would be to simply allow better observation of the process. You don't normally 
think that would be a ground for invalidating actual vote counts. And then finally, there's just good old-fashioned recounts. An automatic recount is being triggered in Georgia under state law because the margin of victory for Biden is so, uh, so small. And it's also small enough in Wisconsin for Trump to demand a recount if he wants to. However, under state law, for that non-automatic recount, he would have to put up the money to pay for it because if he doesn't come out uh, ahead, then he'll be on the hook for it. So far, Trump campaign has not put up the money to do that, so it's unclear how serious they are about that option. With respect to the first category, the places where the deadlines or other rules have been changed, um, this uh, harkens back to a, a theory uh, from the Bush v. Gore opinion in 2000 that commanded only three justices' support, but Justices Alito and Kavanaugh have recently indicated in their opinions that they are interested in reviving it, and it appears to have at least four justices looking upon it favorably. And that theory is it acknowledges the uncontroversial fact that state legislatures under our constitutional system have full plenary authority over how to allocate electoral college votes for the presidency. And that if a state court or other state actor should change what the legislature has provided in a given state regarding a presidential election, that is usurping their plenary authority in violation of Article 2 of the Constitution. In the Pennsylvania case involving the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, which extended the deadline for receipt of absentee ballots by three days, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court recently, just before the election, rejected a, a plea to get involved in that. But in a 4-4 tie, the court also indicated that it would be open to a post-election challenge and indeed had ordered that the late-arriving affected ballots be segregated from the total such that if there was a post-election challenge, it would be possible to deduct those ballots from the, the, t the final count. It is thought that with the advent of Justice Barrett now on the Supreme Court, she might provide the crucial fifth vote to the four conservatives to revive this Bush v. Gore theory and potentially invalidate those late arriving ballots. However, there are a couple of problems with this. First of all, it's not clear that there are enough such ballots to exceed uh, Biden's sizable uh, margin of victory of 36,000 votes or so. Second, because Pennsylvania voters have been relying in good faith on pronouncements by both the state Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court, seems uh, somewhat problematic to pull the rug out from under them at this point. Um, and, you know, finally, there's just the question of uh, whether there are enough states in play uh, for this to even to matter. There are also similar uh, issues with respect to um, a couple of other states where they have changed the rules for the pandemic. Uh, Nevada, Minnesota, North Carolina. Uh, but uh, again, I think there are, are similar issues with those as well. Uh, I go into more detail on this issue in a, uh, uh, an article on the website, The Conversation, that I published last week. So there's that, that set of issues. And then there's also um, the so-called nuclear option in which state legislatures could use that plenary authority and just say, well, our election is incurably uncertain. We're just declaring all of our votes for President Trump. Um, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan have uh, Republican legislatures that could conceivably do that. 
although they do have Democratic governors, and there's some uh, legal grounds for thinking that you would need the cooperation of the governor in order to do that. Arizona has Republican control of both houses of the legislature and the governor's mansion, and so you wouldn't have that issue with them. However, with respect to all of these so-called nuclear options, there is some reason to think that a federal statute uh, passed to try to help govern these types of presidential election disputes suggests that although the state legislatures might be able to do this generally, they might not be able to do it after the election. They could not, once having decided to do an election on the uniform date of the first Tuesday in November provided by federal law, they can't retroactively undo that once having uh, decided to do that. I will mention that, um, and I discussed some of the state legislative uh, power over the presidential elections in my book, Rethinking U.S. Election Law, which came out last year, and I don't have time to go into it all now, but I, I will say in general with respect to this, it doesn't seem like there are state legislatures that are making the move to do that. Although the Trump organization has apparently been privately calling on legislatures to do that, the Pennsylvania legislature, for example, which is Republican-controlled, recently announced that it was not even considering the so-called nuclear option and would simply abide by the results of the election. So just to return to my original point, although there are theoretical paths uh, to victory for the Trump campaign by using um, litigation, particularly that Pennsylvania theory I discussed, uh, or the outside chance of a so-called nuclear option. The problem, I think, for President Trump is that there are just too many different states that would have to be switched from the Biden column to the Trump co column in order to bring him down below, to bring Biden down below 270 electoral college votes. So although this election litigation controversy may drag on for a few more weeks, um, six weeks from now or six weeks from Tuesday when the Electoral College meets, um, it is very, very high likelihood that it will be an uncontroversial vote for uh, President-elect Biden. Steve, thank you. Um, let, me, let me throw out a ahead, question. This is Rick Banks. So this is a, a very illuminating discussion. Um, so I have several questions. Let me start with the, the first one. So am, am I correct in believing that it would be extraordinary for the Supreme Court of the United States to step in and overturn a decision of a state Supreme Court on a matter related to state law. For example, in the you know in the in the case where the where the uh, state Supreme Court made an accommodation on account of COVID and allowed the ballots to come in later than they otherwise would have been required to. Um, would that be an, how, how extraordinary a decision by the Supreme Court or moved by the Supreme Court would that be to overturn a state Supreme Court on that type of matter? It would be extraordinary. And as I discussed in that article last week in the, the conversation website, Justice Roberts in the Pennsylvania case himself penned a separate opinion making precisely that point. He distinguished the Wisconsin case where he did side with the conservatives in uh, overturning uh, a federal court-ordered extension of the absentee ballot deadline from the Pennsylvania case. And he said, precisely because it was a state Supreme Court doing this on a matter of state law, then federal judges should stay out of it because it's a universally accepted principle in the law that federal judges should ordinarily defer to a state court's interpretation of its own state law. However, 
Justice uh, Ginsburg in dissent in Bush v. Gore in 2000, I think with some legitimacy, said that the U.S. Supreme Court did precisely that in Bush v. Gore because the Florida State Supreme Court was interpreting Florida law when it ordered the statewide recount, and then the the U.S. Supreme Court came in and uh, countermanded that. And like I said, there were three justices back then that said presidential elections are different because the Constitution says that it is the state legislature that has the plenary authority regarding presidential elections. We need not show that normal deference if a state Supreme Court seems to be usurping that power. That only commanded three votes back then, but it apparently in 2020 commands at least four votes of the current court. Okay, now let, let me challenge you on that, though. Is it because the, you know, one of the striking um, differences between now and Bush v. Gore is that the society is much more polarized, uh, the political situation is much more volatile, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court is viewed as, as at stake uh, by many people, Justice Roberts among them, I think it's fair to say. Uh, so do you think that the Supreme Court would be... Um, less uh, inclined to wade in and more wary of making a decision that could be decisive in this election, given how close it has been? I would like to think that is the case. I I don't know, because it seems to me that uh, the Supreme Court has, as you've already pointed out, become even more politicized in the last 20 years. So therefore, there's less restraint among some of the justices, although Justice Roberts I think correctly can be viewed as an institutionalist. But particularly, given that President Trump said publicly, repeatedly, I want Amy Coney Barrett to be rushed through extraordinarily quickly and confirmed prior to the election, precisely because I want her to be the decisive fifth vote in case of a post-election litigation and to hand me the presidency. I think that if that did happen and she were the decisive vote, it would really be catastrophic in terms of undermining public confidence, both in the uh, integrity of the judiciary and of our election system. And so hopefully one would like to think that they're conscious of that uh, risk. But again, you know, the Supreme Court has become more politicized in the last 20 years. But I guess for me, the bottom line is this is extremely different from 2000 in the pragmatic sense that it's not just one state, Florida, and that is at stake, and the margin is only a few hundred votes. It is four or five states, and the margin of victory is in the tens of thousands of votes, or maybe in the case of Georgia, thousands of votes. And so precisely because litigation victory in any one of those states would not likely be actually outcome determinative, that itself is a separate reason for the Supreme Court to decline to take the case, because usually in election law uh, litigation, unless you can show a credible chance that a result uh, in your favor would actually be outcome determinative in the overall election, courts are very reluctant generally to get involved. Just to push back on that point for a second, imagine that um, the Supreme Court did intervene in Pennsylvania and say that, no, you need to set those segregated um, and throw out those votes and you know do a recount. And we don't know what the answer is going to be, but you should do so. Um, when, if they were to make that announcement, it wouldn't be perceived to be that big of a deal because he would still win regardless. So isn't that a way of saying um, we're making a decision that is, you know, while the temperature is still pretty low versus in Florida where it was all or none? 
know, this is going to determine the presidency. It's likely won't determine the presidency. And yet they, you know, they make a, a narrow decision that says that state Supreme Courts can't do that, and it's really up to the state legislature. Right. Um, it depends on, on how judicial activists the Supreme Court justices want to be. I mean, typically under election law, um, you wouldn't want to get involved uh, if it didn't make a difference in the outcome of the election. As I mentioned, Pennsylvania also but has... That's the reason the question. It's not that they can't decide that. This is a specific litigation as it relates to the state of Pennsylvania's determination of who the electoral, you know, who those electors are going to be. That's oh, the, I understand the question. I they don't, because the Electoral College hasn't met yet. Right. Yeah, I understand the, the, the question, but I was about to say that in addition, because they'd have to decide a really difficult question of what do you do about the reliance interests of those voters that relied in good faith on the orders of the Pennsylvania, I mean, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and indeed the U.S. Supreme Court prior to the election, what, you know, the, the, the difficulty of deciding to, uh, you know, uh, undo the votes that have been cast in that in reliance thereof. I think the court might be reluctant to in, get involved if they think it didn't matter. But I think it is true, like you say, that if they did decide to uh, get involved, it may not poison public opinion of the Supreme Court as much as Bush v. Gore did, precisely because Pennsylvania is gravy for Biden right now, or at least appears to be, that you know, even without Pennsylvania, there, there are other ways to get to 270. Okay. All right, with that, thank you, Steve. We're going to pivot uh, to the subject of the Chicago Fire of 1871. Our next speaker is Carl Smith, a professor of history and English at Northwestern University. He is the author of Chicago's Great Fire, the Destruction and Resurrection of an Iconic American City. And he'll be discussing a case study uh, for, uh, of Chicago Fire of 1871. Go ahead, Carl. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, the Chicago Fire began around 9 p.m. on the evening of Sunday, October 8, 1871, and ended about 30 hours later. It started about a mile and a half southwest of the center of the city. It turned out to be one of the biggest fires in urban fires in history. Uh, it was hot enough to bend iron, melt glass, turn stone structures to powder, but it consumed an area about four miles long and three-quarters of a mile wide. Uh, the losses included the entire commercial center of the city and a third of the city's evaluation. It did not, as you suggested earlier, Larry, uh, burn the whole city down or most of it down, but it did burn down the crucial parts. 90,000 of 330,000 Chicagoans were instantly homeless and many more didn't have any job all of a sudden. It burned so extensively for a combination of reasons, though Mrs. O'Leary and her cows were blameless. These included the weather. There was a very dry summer and fall, high October temperatures, strong winds from the southwest. There was a major fire just the evening before the Great Fire that damaged several pieces of firefighting equipment and incapacitated many firefighters and exhausted all of them. While the department was state of art for the time, a state of the art for the time, it was under-equipped and understaffed with fewer than 200 firefighters. On the fatal evening of October 8th, an inexplicable failure in the alarm system delayed the arrival of the already weakened and exhausted fire department so that by the time it was on the scene, this otherwise commonplace, an otherwise commonplace small fire, thanks to high wind and flying embers, was unstoppable. 
given where it began and the direction of the wind from the southwest to downtown and the north side were doomed. The underlying reason the fire could do so much harm, however, was that Chicago, which had barely existed only 40 years earlier, had been built very hastily and sloppily, almost entirely out of wood. Even finer downtown buildings of brick and stone had much wood ornamentation and there were wooden signs, sidewalks, and fences all over the place. What fire restrictions there were went unobserved and unenforced. Fire officials and leading newspapers had been warning of major trouble, but taxpayers and politicians resisted building restrictions on the cost of a bigger and better equipped department. It was as if Chicago were purposely constructed to burn down, and it did. But its recovery was as remarkable as its destruction. Within two years, a larger downtown had emerged, and by 1890, less than 20 years after the fire, the city's population had more than tripled to just over a million people, making it the second biggest city in the United States and growing fast continually, as it did up to 1950. The resolve and capability of Chicagoans shouldn't be underestimated in all this, but Chicago recovered for the same reason it rose so quickly in the first place. It had been the creation of the seismic 19th century forces of immigration and westward migration, industrialization and steam power, and the conquest of space and time by the telegraph and the railroad, which did not exist a few decades before the fire. Most important of all was its location at the southwestern tip of the Great Lakes between the productive power and the, the consumer appetite of the eastern United States and all the resources of the farms, ranches, ranges, timberlands, coal fields, mines, and the continent's interior, the heartland, and beyond to the Rocky Mountains. Chicago was a natural major nexus in the emerging national and international economy, and so that made it an irresistible attraction for investment capital and people of entrepreneurial spirit. So it recovered because the keys of its vitalities were still there. In spite of all the destruction, much of the stores of commodities like lumber and grain were untouched. The Union stockyards were untouched. And more crucially, the railroad and telegraph network, except right in the center of the city, were just fine. The fire did nothing to alter the strategic location of the city. So investment capital and people continued to flow in faster than ever. So the question comes, what lessons does the fire offer for urban resilience? One is a matter of timing. If Chicago had to burn as it did, there could hardly have been a better moment than 1871. It was already solidly established, but also poised for future growth. Something similar was true for San Francisco in 1906 when it was hit by an earthquake, a major earthquake. But the situation was different, for example, in New Orleans in 2005 when Katrina struck. It was already in decline, and the blow was harder to absorb than Chicago's Great Fire. And also the quality of the disaster is very important. Uh, the Chernobyl disaster uh, was almost it was virtually unrecoverable from, certainly in any kind of uh, timely way, uh, different from a fire or a flood, or even when they talk about a pandemic. Such disasters, including the current pandemic, put cities to a special test by their very nature because they're places defined by scale and density. Uh, and, and the pandemic loves both scale, does density most of all. 
but the advantages and attractions of scale and density don't disappear. So if other things, all other things being equal, cities can respond quite well after uh, something like the current pandemic or even the fire. Resilience doesn't come easy since all disasters, including the Great Chicago Fire, as much as Katrina, reveal and deepen existing social and economic divisions, and they can have a bitter aftermath as the fire did. But if cities can and do adapt to the larger rather than temporary exigencies of this or that isolated disaster, however large, they can retain their resilience. Uh, the tougher exigencies right now that threaten resilience essentially include things like climate change and with it a possibly ceaseless series of fires and floods uh, that threaten rural and urban areas alike. So it, uh, it's a tricky question, this matter of resilience. Thanks. Thanks, Carl. Very interesting. I, uh, I hadn't thought of Chernobyl or New Orleans, and so I'll come back to those in a second, but let's first work on, uh, on Chicago. Um, you know, with COVID, it was sort of unexpected. Um, we knew that there was possibilities of pandemics, but having a fire uh, was something that I would say was not uh, was was right there and expect it was it was expected. They had prepared for it, and yet um, the city failed. When you think about the failure to deal appropriately with a mass fire like this and its uniqueness in terms of its quantity, um, what did the city do badly? Uh, in its planning, was it a, a zoning problem? Was it a um, should they have done a better job of preparing their firemen? Was it was there just too much wood? Um, I remember William Cronin in his book about the Chicago Fire said that because it was such a wooden a city, there was so much potential energy waiting for a spark. Um, how do you right, think about right. the fire itself? Well, I think first of all, there's virtually no planning in the building of Chicago. And to the extent there are fire limits or fire laws that where you could build it would and where you couldn't, uh, they were very loose and they were completely unenforced. So there's no real fire prevention. And then there isn't enough of a, of a, of a fire department to fight if something really serious like this happens. Fire prevention, I might add, is not a serious concern in this country uh, and most places till into the 20th century. Uh, uh, and as you say, fire is very common. So it, it could have, yes, it could have been built better, but it, it's very easy to say in retrospect, but urban fire is very common in the 19th century. And it was this, but Chicago was especially uh, prone because of, of the extent of the wood. It was as if, as Cronin Lezard said, you just took all the wood in Wisconsin and Michigan and just put it into Chicago uh, and dried it out. And, and, and so it was all waiting. Uh, and then a series of, of unlucky circumstances, but, but, to, but you have to plan for those. Those things yeah. happen. Uh, but you talk about, you know, you know let, let's not forget, as, as uh, Dr. Gandhi was talking about, I mean, we had SARS, we had these other things. And in the 19th century, there were things like yellow fever and smallpox that went through places too. I mean, that, that these things are not surprises in many cases. I mean, I mean, they're always a surprise. They're always a shock, but they're never a surprise. They, they can happen. So a lot has to do with how you prepare for them. Uh, but a lot has to do with, you know, it's just very different times at the time of most of the uh, um, uh, 
smallpox uh, and, and yellow fever, we still believe in the miasmatic theories of disease and not the germ theory. So it, when you think about... Carl, it seems like this is, is interesting, but it seems like you're suggesting that the choice of policymakers and regulatory choices, they mattered a lot in one respect, but virtually not at all in another. So they mattered a lot in terms of the likelihood that the fire would occur and how, how devastating the fire is. But it sounds like you're also saying that the choices that were made mattered not at all in terms of the city's recovery, uh, that the resilience of Chicago, frankly, owed to um, just a lot of features of Chicago, uh, which, were in, uh, which were essentially unchangeable by policymakers. Is that, is that a correct reading of choice mattering a lot? On the front end, I in think, terms of what I, the I think it's, curves, right, but it's virtually right, not at all on the back end. I might want to tinker with it a little bit, but for the sake of time, I'll say I think you're right. Uh, when Chicago, the, a lot of people think that Chicago was rebuilt safer. It wasn't, uh, particularly, and Chicago was was resisted uh, more precautions, more laws, more resistance. Uh, uh, so. Uh, Yes, the, 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 but it, the rebuilding of Chicago shows more than anything else the power of the transformative power of the 19th century, of, of uh, the, the, the forces that I talked about before. Uh, mostly this westward ex and industrial expansion and, the, uh, exp and Chicago as a crucial node in an international and national system. I want to expand on the Chernobyl uh, comparison for a second, sure. Um, sure. which I think I'd never even thought of, and I think it's really interesting. Um, I used to live in Japan, and uh, when I lived in Tokyo, I used to go exploring, and I went with my wife and visited Hiroshima. And what I saw there was a completely normal uh, urban environment. Um, in fact, you would never know that a nuclear weapon had to completely destroy the city. They had like a little park where, you know, where, which was ground zero and, you know, a melted facility. But away from that, you would never know. And here is an incredibly successful um, entrepreneurial and uh, city. Why do you think, as you, and this is outside your bailiwick, but why, like in a Hiroshima example versus a Chernobyl, um, why... Is there something, I guess you're coming back to the, the point was, there are reasons why cities exist where they do. And just because they're completely destroyed for either by human or, you know, chance or nature, um, they will rebuild themselves. And maybe there's something special about Chernobyl and New Orleans that makes it different from Hiroshima and Chicago. And what, what is that? Well, I'm not a nuclear scientist, so I can't speak of the comparative, what can I say, radiation in Chernobyl and, and in uh, uh, Hiroshima. Uh, but th my understanding of Chernobyl now is it's just an unsafe place to live in a way that can't be easily remediated. And Chernobyl in some ways was, uh, it didn't have other reasons to, uh, to exist and revive as Hiroshima does. Uh, and you, my guess is you visited uh, Hiroshima a good long time after the bomb was dropped on it. Yeah, 50 years. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, no, but Hirosh Hiroshima was not what did not look like a place that had been rebuilt in the last three years. It looks like it was uh, rebuilt immediately after the after the war. 
to the point it was unrecognizably different from any other Japanese city. I mean, like, Tokyo itself had completely, was completely destroyed by the war as well. It was firebombed. Um, and yet, you know, it's completely rebuilt as well. In, indeed. I mean, I, there's no argument there. But I, it, again, it depends on the situation on the ground. My understanding is that you can't live in Chernobyl now. Uh, I can't tell you when it was, quote-unquote, safe to live in 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 uh, Hiroshima and the difference between a place where a bomb was dropped and a place where a nuclear reactor melted down. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm out of my depth here on that. But no I would suspect that has something to do with it. Uh, but getting to the things we've talked about, a city can, if, if its reasons for existing are very powerful and it gets hit with a kind of one-off thing such as a flood or a fire, uh, there is good reason, or a pandemic, even. Uh, um, right, that's right. That's right. Ultimately, I want you to talk about epidemic. There is good reason to think that the the same things that made it healthy, that made it, uh, 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 can I say, socially and economically healthy before, can be restored. I think. I mean, I'm not, again, I study the past, not the future, but I think, uh, assuming, as we most of us do, that a vaccine will appear, I think cities will, life will quote unquote return to normal. I think there will be things that can't recover and there may be new things and there may be shifts that can be clearly traced to the, to, uh, the particular disaster. But um, uh, I think the, the resilience will still be there. It may take a, you know, be winners and losers and take different forms. Okay. Mitch Feynman, can you go ahead and introduce this sleep segment, and we'll come back to uh, Peggy in a minute. Yeah, no problem. Let me go ahead and do that. Thanks, Larry. I never thought much about sleep until about four years ago when Ariana Huffington started peddling her book on this topic on late-night TV. Huffington explained that a full night's sleep is one of the most important ways to stay healthy and reduce stress. Yet many of my professional friends often brag about only getting four to five hours a night as a kind of badge of honor to demonstrate that they're busy and important. But I think now we all recognize that good sleep is one of the best ways to maintain physical and mental health, yet we don't really understand how sleep benefits us. So when Larry mentioned sleep as a potential what happens next topic several weeks ago, I thought it was a great idea, especially with COVID and this week's nail-biting late-night presidential election vote counting, sleep became more challenging for many of us. And I immediately thought of Dr. Rafael Palaio as a speaker who teaches one of the most popular undergraduate courses at Stanford called Sleep and Dreams. I became aware of Dr. Palaio and his course through my younger son, a sophomore at Stanford, who recently took Dr. Palaio's class My son loves to talk about his new knowledge, and he would instruct the entire family on what we need to do to ensure better sleep. And when Larry and I organized a preparatory video chat with Raphael in advance of today's What Happens Next, I found myself equally enamored by the topic he will cover today, why do we sleep and dream, as well as the way Raphael explains the biological science of sleep. I'm also very excited to hear from Stephen Burton about snoring. More than annoyance for the person sharing your bed, snoring can negatively affect your overall health, particularly your heart, and cause hypertension. 
and it just, and it just gets worse with age for both men and women. It isn't just overweight white men who snore. This discussion will include different ways to try to alleviate snoring, ranging from complex contraptions to more simple tips, such as being mindful of your evening alcohol consumption. And with that, I'd like to pass the conversation to our next speaker, Dr. Rafael Palayo. Actually, uh, hang on, Rafael. What we're going to do is we're going to make uh, Steve Burton go first, and then we're going to go to Rafael. Uh, Steve, oh, um, no problem. Uh, Steve is the Vice President of Business Development at Snap Diagnostics, a firm that uh, works on figuring out uh, snoring and sleep apnea issues. Steve, why don't you start, and then we'll go to Rafael immediately afterwards. Go ahead. Sure, sure. Thanks for the time today. You'll each spend over 25 years of your life sleeping. Science taught us that Harvard Medical School was right to declare sleep deserves equal standing among the three pillars of health, nutrition, exercise, and sleep. My focus is how abnormal breathing, specifically sleep apnea and snoring, breaks sleep quality. I still vividly remember the first time I witnessed sleep apnea. I was a research technician observing an older male sleep subject. As soon as he fell asleep, he started holding his breath, and the events were lasting over a minute. His heart rate ranged from 35 beats per minute to nearly 200 beats per minute. I started holding my breath at the same time, but I couldn't match his performance, and I was a 20-year-old in excellent physical shape. Sleep apnea and snoring are problems that impact tens of millions of Americans. It's the results of a narrowing and sometimes a complete closure of your airway. Excess weight plays a role in the disease. Overweight, middle-aged men form the classic stereotype. But one in four people who suffer sleep apnea and snoring are normal weight. It's not just obese men. Gender differences in sleep apnea are fascinating. Premenopausal women rarely have apnea. Even when the woman is significantly overweight, their sleep test is often negative. But I qualify that statement with premenopausal. It's a little-known fact that postmenopausal women have the exact same rate of apnea as men. It's another mystery we don't understand about hormones and mental health for, and women's health. Commonly, a provider will order a sleep test for a woman in her 30s or 40s because her body type or medical history suggests a risk of apnea, yet the test will be negative for apnea. But the same woman, post-menopause, can develop severe sleep apnea. The problem is her apnea often goes undiagnosed or untreated because both the patient and medical provider think they've already ruled out sleep apnea from the prior negative test. Treating it is interesting. Unfortunately, there's unlikely to ever be a pharmaceutical treatment for apnea because it's a mechanical problem in your airway and it seems to require a mechanical solution. Sleep apnea treatments undergone dramatic transformation. In 1985, the principal treatment was a trach. My patient care strategy in the 80s was to scare a patient to lose weight or I'm gonna recommend cutting a hole in your throat. The trach didn't cure the behavior. The airway would still close, but the patient opens their trach when they go to bed and essentially breathe below the obstruction. In the morning, they'd simply cap the opening. But in the mid-80s, PAP was invented. 
it's essentially a pneumatic splint. It blows air into your airway to hold it open and allow normal breathing. PAP is virtually 100% effective from the very first night you start using it. But again, it's not a cure. The moment you stop your PAP, your apnea returns in full. Today's blowers are quieter and smaller, the masks are more comfortable, and the treatment is intellectually regulated. It delivers the amount you need to maintain an open airway. And if you gain weight or consume alcohol, your PAP automatically adjusts. It's awesome. But PAP is still blowing air up your nose. And unless the patient is well-managed, about half the people prescribed PAP stop using it within the first year. Now think what I'm saying. Untreated sleep apnea literally reduces 10 years of your life and increases your risk of diabetes, hypertension, stroke, and congestive heart failure. But knowing all that, most people prefer to suffer the disease rather than the treatment. There are some surgical and dental interventions, but it's not possible to reliably predict if they'll work. So the patient is faced with the decision to undergo the expense and risk only to learn in many cases it doesn't work. I'll close with a few comments about snoring. Estimates of apnea range from 10 to 15% of adults, but over 40% of adults snore. And as we age, that proportion grows even higher. It's the third leading reason cited for divorce behind only infidelity and financial challenges. And snoring cessation is the most common topic of patents filed in the U.S. Literally dozens were filed this year alone. A huge proportion of men are evicted from their bedrooms due to loud, raucous snoring. Yet I'll caution you ladies to be kind to your bed partners because post-menopause you'll snore the same as he does. And his iPhone recording will prove it to you very unceremoniously. Importantly, snoring is not a joke. Published science on tens of thousands of patients have proved snoring, even in the absence of apnea, is related to significant mortality. But unfortunately, insurance providers continue to ignore the science and still consider snoring a cosmetic issue. But I'll end on a positive note. Science has proven there's one home test that can reliably predict when a surgical procedure will remit snoring. Thanks. Okay, great. So... Uh, See, let, let me let me just start. I just want to say, see how important a, a topic this is, and I really thank you for for bringing this to everyone's attention because sleep is one of those things that we typically give short shrift. You often hear people talking about how they missed the night of sleep, but they're going to make it up over the weekend. And I think one of the implications of your remarks is that sleep is actually hey guys, I'm uh, bad. more I'm important. Guys, are you? Is that Raphael? Yeah, is this sound any better? Much better. That's much better. You know, so it's funny because um, um, I, I decided to use a landline for the call initially because we told them the landline is actually preparingly worse in our home than, our, <laughs> than my cell phone. So I'm sorry for that, guy. <laughs> This is one of the paradoxes of modern life. So I, w I was just talking about how important sleep is. So, Raphael, let's turn it over to you. Why don't you go ahead, Raphael, and then we'll, get, we'll do it together. Go ahead. Yeah. Sure. I was just saying, you know. Um, Start from the top. From the, well, sleep is a paradox, and that, that's something I always like to uh, stress to people. We're most vulnerable when we're sleeping, and why would the top predator on the planet allow itself this vulnerability? Well, depending on your perspective, this waste of time. We want to hide away to sleep, but hor horrifically, and at a great cost of society, can and do fall asleep in unsafe situations. 
We've all been sleeping since before our births, longer than we've been breathing air or eating food. And every animal study so far sleeps also. Even jellyfish have been experimentally proven to sleep. And some fish have been described as having the equivalent of rapid eye movement sleep. What are they dreaming about? We don't know. But given the diversity of life across the animal kingdom, sleep's functions have also been diversified. And this is why it's, it's proven to be so difficult to give a single answer as to what is the function of sleep. It really would be a, a biologically inefficient thing for sleep to do to take up so much time if it only had just one function. A service station should not keep your car all day if you just need to put air in your tires. Sleep undoubtedly fulfills different functions within all of us. And the big question is why would we, these functions need to require brains to go offline, right? We become vulnerable when we're sleeping. And sleep seems to fulfill multiple functions. There's a restorative concept to it. The more you sleep, the better you feel. So there's a maintenance of brain energy metabolism. The brain is an electrical organ and has to refuel. And so sometimes... So we think in sleep, this uh, energy stores are, are, are replenished, but also you have to replenish all these molecules that the brain is using. All the proteins have to be made. So this seems to happen also in sleep. And also there's a, a maintenance component to this because we have to remove the metabolic waste products of being awake. It's an electrical system. There are waste products that have to be removed. But there's also higher order cognitive functions to sleep. Uh, we know that sleep helps our learning, helps our memory, helps our plasticity, and in the end, our creativity seems to hinge on our sleep. We need to be able to adapt to a changing world. And this is perhaps the greatest skill that humanity has, the ability to deal with a changing world and come up with solutions to it. And when we, dis when we learn about the, the biology of creativity, the physiology of how the brain takes new information and new situations and incorporates it to come up with new solutions, undoubtedly sleeping and dreaming are going to play a role in this. Many people have been inspired by their dreams. A key relevant role of sleep is in immune function, and I'm glad Dr. Gandhi was on, on the line. When we feel sick, uh, you want to get into bed, and when you are sleep-deprived, we're more prone to infections. This relationship has been studied for decades. People with sleep disorders are more likely to develop autoimmune diseases. Experimental studies in animals have proven causality, not associations, causality in, for the role of sleep and infection outcome. Um, Sleep is not only important for fighting infections caused by invading bacteria, but also essential to keep in check the harmless bacteria that naturally inhabit our bodies. All of us who've had yogurt, or we're talking about probiotics, getting these good bacteria. If you're sleep deprived, that good bacteria will attack you. In the early experiments that were done on sleep deprivation on animals, the animals, what they died of when you didn't get enough sleep was sepsis. The body attacked itself. So good sleep is associated with reduced infection risk and can improve the infection outcomes. And more importantly to these times now, vaccinations have been shown to be affected by the amount of sleep you get. And if you don't get enough sleep, your, your response to vaccination is decreased. And this ties into overall uh, health. I'm really glad we had a conversation about snoring earlier. Nobody should ever snore. It makes no sense to make noise when you're breathing. You don't, you don't snore when you're awake. You shouldn't be snoring when you're asleep. We know that snoring does play a role in things like divorce, and um, as Dr. Uh, Steve Burton mentioned, and in fact, snoring among women is an even higher risk factor for divorce than among men, so it's not a fair situation. In the end, you should wake up feeling refreshed. You should never ever wake up tired. If you routinely wake up tired, something is wrong. You don't go to nice restaurants and leave feeling hungry. You should not get out of bed and feel tired. You should all wake up feeling refreshed, and I thank you for your time. I'm sorry for the technical problems earlier. Oh, no problem. Okay, so um, so you said there's no specific reason why biologically it makes sense that we sleep. Um, but if you had to guess, like, what's going on? Why? Um, what are we doing? Why do we do it? And why do you feel so refreshed when you wake up? Why is there this sense of um, 
So I, I, what I'm saying is there's no single reason we sleep um, because um, whatever sleep's functions are may be different in different animals. For example, one idea is that we sleep to hide away to be safe, but that would not require us to, to go offline in our brains, right? To, we, could, we could still be safe and be vigilant at the same time. We don't have to go offline that way. The, the animal that seems to sleep the most of all <clears throat> He's a large brown bat, sleeps about 18 and a half hours a day. Uh, probably the animal does not need all that sleep, but it's hiding in, a, in its cave, and it's probably using up less resources that way, and it's in a safe area. Uh, other animals sleep a lot less. Uh, elephants sleep less than lions do. It probably makes sense in their, in, the, in their world to do this. In every biological niche we can think of, the herbivores sleep uh, less than the carnivores. We're an omnivore, and we sleep about eight hours a day. So sleep has restorative properties to it. One of the things that seems to be restored is simply the uh, energy stores, adenosine triphosphate. Again, the brain is an electrical organ, and what drives a lot of the, the, the functions in the brain, electrical organs, is this molecule called adenosine triphosphate, which comes from our, uh, made by the mitochondria. And I always say the best gift our mothers ever gave us. All of our mitochondria came from our mothers. The best gift we ever got from our mothers was our mitochondria. But that I'll remind us that later. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Mother, for your mitochondria. That's how they do the DNA tracings for people, by tracking their mitochondrial DNA to see what your maternal uh, genetics are. Why did you pick the brain as the number one? Yeah, why did we pick the brain as number one? Yeah. Yeah. It's your sleep controller. (laughs) Well, the thing is is that... that, the thinking is that sleep has no function. One of the earliest quotes from early sleep scientists, if sleep has no function, the biggest mistake evolution ever made. Sleep is undoubtedly a neurological function. Um, yes, other things happen when we're sleeping. And, and for example, our kidneys behave differently when we're sleeping. Our heart behaves differently when we're sleeping. So a GI system, for example, behaves differently when we're, when we're sleeping. So there are physiological consequences to all of these things. But it seems that the main driver to this is going to be, at least in humans, is the function of the brain and how it works. And you all know this. It seems self-evident. If you don't get enough sleep, you don't feel good. Right? You don't, it's not that your heart feels weird or your kidneys feel weird. It's that you can't think straight. And it's a, just an amazing process that you can struggle so much. I know the feeling of wanting to sleep so bad that it hurts when I was a resident. Mm-hmm. You do anything to sleep. And, in fact, lack of sleep and sleep deprivation is a sanctioned form of torture, right? That's what people try to do this to people to get them to talk, to break them, to not let them sleep. And nothing should feel better to you than that feeling of getting a good night's sleep. It's just a delicious feeling. And when you travel, when, when we used to travel, no matter where you went in the world, no matter, you may sit at the finest hotels, there's something about getting back to your own bed that should feel good to you. On the other hand, people who have sleep disorders, and sleep apnea is, is one of the main ones we deal with, but there are other ones, of course, many variants of insomnia. People with insomnia, they often sleep worse when they're in their own bed and sleep better when they're away from home. When we do sleep studies, we put all these wires in people's heads, and people with insomnia often will ask us about the mattress because they slept so well, despite these wires and cameras on them. So sleep is undoubtedly a neurological function to, uh, to a large degree, and it's part of the autonomic nervous system. There are a lot of weird things that happen when we're sleeping. For example, we're all warm-blooded animals. We've been taught that we're warm-blooded. We're warm-blooded. 
And think about what's required for a biological system to do this, to control its, its core temperature despite the, uh, whatever changes are happening in the outside world. Well, we're warm-blooded animals all the time, except when we're dreaming. When we're dreaming sleep, we actually behave like cold-blooded animals. And if you have a sedentary lifestyle, your peak heart rate is when you're dreaming. The biggest workout your body gets is when you're dreaming. And this whole issue of sleep apnea is why we think people die in their sleep. People tend to die in their sleep in the early morning hours when we're dreaming. And this ties into actually the current uh, political situation. Since we talked about politics earlier in the election cycle, um, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Scalia, if you, you guys can look it up, the listeners can look this up, look up Scalia and apnea. He's thought to have died as a result of sleep apnea during the night. And, mm-hmm. and so untreated sleep apnea may have led to some of the ramifications that we have in the current political system. That's funny. Um, I have a question about mm-hmm. dreams. I guess it's yeah, too funny about it. <laughs> I just said, Dr. Lee's right there. It's funny. I know. I'm, I'm kidding. Obviously, it's, it's interesting, right? But right. it's, what but is, it's a weird what is, First of all, the like, most basic question, like, what is a dream? And then the second part is question is, um, there seems to have been um, a, a change in the scientific community's view about dreams. And what I mean by this is, you know, my grandfather uh, studied under Freud at the University of Vienna, uh, maybe a hundred years ago, and at the time, you know, Freud's views on dreams was, I would say, cutting edge and, and wildly popular. And in my grandfather's memoirs, uh, at the end of his life, he was very disappointed that Freud's views had been um, kind of rejected by the psychological, scientific, psychiatric community. Um, where is the science now on dreams? What is it? Is, was Freud wrong? Where is the, where is the views on, on that? Freud, Freud plays a key role in our understanding of sleep, and we would not be where we are now if it wasn't for Freud's work. The Interpretation of Dreams, which is Freud's masterwork, gets published in 1899. 1899, that's over 100 years ago. The study of research and ideas when the technology to to study it was not even invented until 25 years later so it's not fair to just knock down Freud just on that he had these insights into what was going on and Freud was actually a neurologist who had to come up with the ideas of how to explain that some patients were having paralysis and they couldn't move and what was this process based on when it didn't make neurological sense based on the wiring and he because he knew the wiring he's a neurologist so he started talking to them and come up with the ideas of what was happening to them and he realized that they were so repressed these people that a way to get into their heads if you will was to talking about their dreams because their dreams reflected their life and your sleep reflection of your life unless you look in your sleep it goes back and forth dreams first of all are defined as this imagery that we have. And, and the study of sleep has changed. There are controversies in it, and you're correct. So a lot of things people talk about the uh, idea of sleep imagery instead of dreaming. So the fragments of thoughts that you have as you drift off to sleep may be different than the intense, vivid, movie-like things that will happen uh, in, late, later in the night. And when you're dreaming, our brain behaves in a different way. Um, the idea that sleep is to, for example, restore energy I talked about earlier does not fit into the idea of how dreaming works. When you are dreaming, your brain is metabolically more active in some regions than when you're awake. For you to have a, for you to be able to hear my voice, I'm, you, you, it's a physical reaction to hearing the sound waves. For you to hear them in a dream, you have to create that. So it requires more energy. So what happened is that 
coming out of World War II, Freud was all the rage. And there was a guy named William DeMent from Stanford who was a medical student in Chicago. And there they were studying sleep with a guy named Dr. Kleitman. And they wanted to measure sleep. And Dr. DeMent was interested in Freud. And said, well, how can we prove Freud's theories one way or the other? How can we do experiments on Freud's ideas unless we can measure sleep reliably? And they started measuring sleep with brainwaves, which was a relatively new technique in the 50s. And they discovered these eye movements. And then they discovered that people were dreaming associated with the eye movements. And for the first time, they can make a link between dreaming and a way of measuring the dreams objectively, not just what somebody remembers, but it could actually objectively find it. So one of the first things they found was that we dream about 20% of the time. And also they found that people um, who said they don't dream at all actually do dream, they just don't remember them because dreams are forgotten easily. And what some people were calling dreams to their psychoanalysts weren't really dreams at all, but just thoughts they were having during the day and they just brought them up into therapy. So that's what happened is in the 50s, the idea that dreams represented repressed ideas and things like that. Well, really what they represented was what people were remembering about their dreams, not the actual dreams themselves. So that's how in the 50s, Freud started losing popularity because these different ideas came about, because we were able to measure it. Having said that, this has come back. And of course, I teach at Stanford. We actually have a psychoanalyst, Dr. Charlton, who comes in and speaks about the power of how dreams influence people. And how uh, in modern psychoanalysis, which is still done, dreams are incorporated into helping people understand their problems and live better lives. So. Freud has kind of not been rejected completely, but it's been transformed and reinterpreted in light of the current uh, science that we have of dreams. All right, let me bring Steve back into the conversation. Steve, sure, and, um, and before you point me in yeah. a different direction, I'll say that my, I began sleep as I was a Freudian psychologist, and then I attracted myself to sleep for the study of dreams. So my first four years of research were on dreams, and I would do things to patients while they were sleeping and then wake them to find out what they were dreaming. And so what I can say is that the average dream of an individual is the exact same thing that dominates their thoughts during the day. The things you obsess about all day long are the things you report in your dreams. But we don't remember our dreams. The things you remember are the really crazy things. I'm running down. The typical report to me was I'm sitting on my bills uh, on my porch, having a cup of coffee, doing my bills. Very boring, very mundane. But if you ask the average person what dreams they remember, it was I was running down the street naked, being chased by my third grade teacher with a gun, because that's the crazy one that jumps into <laughs> your mind. But the average thing you dream and think about are the exact same things your mind is thinking about all day. So that said, we can switch to whatever you'd like to now. Okay, Steve, this is Rick. Yeah. Hey. Steve, so the, um, I mean, this is an illuminating uh, discussion of sleep. Steve, could you say more, though, about the potential treatments for sleep apnea? Uh, you talked about the CPAP, which is a dominant standard of care, and that's nearly 100% effective, I think you said. But then you also mentioned that almost everyone who starts it discontinue, discontinues the use of the CPAP after a period of time. So what, are, what advances in treatment have there been, and which should we look forward to as becoming uh, even more significant in the years to come? 
Sure. So obviously the key is you want something to help breathing, right? And so the, the, the one that was always the hope that every patient ever asked for is, is there a pill I can take? And, and if you remember, I was talking about how premenopausal women don't have sleep apnea. So there was some question about whether progesterone might have been that. So in the old days, instead of a trach, we would try progesterone. And it was great for breast development, but unfortunately, it didn't help the men at all for their sleep apnea. So that search has had to continue. So the treatments that seem to be starting to get legs, are there some oral appliances that people can visit dentists who are skilled in the art that advance the lower jaw? And because your tongue is muscularly attached to your lower jaw, it brings the tongue forward. Because if you think about the things that you learned when you were talking about breathing and assisting someone who needs to be restored breathing, they would say tilt the head and advance the jaw, and then you would do mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. So those same things are what the dental appliance does. It moves the jaw forward, the tongue comes forward, and in some patients, it no, can remit. No, I think I better plug it in. It's, it's quit happened. three times. Yeah? yeah? Sorry, <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, go ahead. So, uh, yeah, so... The, the other thing is that there are some surgical procedures, but and like, for example, the, the trach is 100% effective, but it's just not what the average person would like to do when they were faced with the fact of sleep apnea. And unfortunately, there just hasn't been a surgical procedure that could reliably and consistently remit sleep apnea. Can can I add to that, please? I have sure. A, Hello. A All right. This, this is Dr. Vallejo. I, 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 I think. Yeah, let's let uh, Dr. Vallejo jump in here. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, just just a couple of points on that. Um, I'm, I'm, that's that's my job. Basically, what I take care of every day is sleep apnea. Um, so CPAP does work very well, and it's gotten better. And what happens is I think it's just not delivered appropriately. Some uh, folks don't have the machine adjusted correctly, the, the new masks. But once you set it, once you dial it in correctly, most people will do well with it. But when you just kind of through, sprinkle it out and throw it out there, not surprising that people don't do well. But when it's treated correctly, most people do very, very well with CPAP. Surgery um, has improved a lot. The original tracheostomy was in hypothetically cur curative, but 25% of the patients had residual sleepiness. Uh, despite having their apnea corrected because of residual damage we think happened to their brain. Stanford is considered a center of excellence worldwide for sleep apnea surgery. So better surgeries are, are available at Stanford than pretty, uh, that have come from Stanford and now have been sp spread throughout the planet, including moving the uh, reconstruction of the entire face to, so that you have more space in the back of the throat and moving the tongue forward. And also there's now pacemakers, believe it or not, for the tongue that seem to be very effective. And it's actually covered by insurance, just like you have a pacemaker for your heart. Heart, the problem with sleep apnea is that the airway tone decreases, so the tongue slides backwards. So the hypoglossal nerve stimulators that are now available seem to be very good tools for a lot of patients, especially if they don't tolerate CPAP. Anyway, just a couple of things. So there are just uh, surgery has gotten a lot better than it used to be. It used to be horrific in the 80s and 90s especially, but things have gotten a lot better now. We have a question from the audience. Uh, this comes from Rajiv Narang. He wants to know a little bit about uh, what goes on with adolescents. Uh, I have two adolescents, and I can tell you right now, their sleep schedule, particularly during COVID, is really strange. Um, is, 
is it problematic that they have this different schedule than the rest of us? Are they getting enough sleep, and does it have any long-term consequences? Hey, Larry, can I, sorry, can I jump in? Because I, I wanted to just add to that because I had a similar question. I mean, you're, you're teaching this course on sleep to most, you know, average age of 20. So maybe on top of that, I'm just curious to kind of hear some of what you've heard from your students over the years or like the one or two things that they're most interested in, in, in addition to the question that Larry asked, which maybe you can respond to first. Sure. Sorry to jump in. Um, I, uh, I, I've been active in the movement to change school start times, and California became the first uh, state in the nation to have a law specifically to protect the sleeping of teenagers. Most adolescents in the United States are sleep-deprived. That's the Center for Disease Control has been measuring this for a long time. This precedes the use of technology. Technology didn't help, but sleep deprivation in teenagers has been going on for a long, long time. And the estimate is about 75% of teenagers don't get enough sleep. With adolescents, there's a physiological change in the way we sleep, and we tend to stay up later. There's a biological shifting of the way we fall asleep. We tend to stay up later, which, by the way, is balanced. But people over age 50 tend to go to sleep earlier. So in a tribe of people, a tribe of people makes sense that somebody's got to be awake at night. So why not have the youngest people watch the fire and, and, and watch, watch over us a little bit? So they tend to just go to bed later, and we, as we get older, tend to go to sleep earlier. So there's a biological issue there. Uh, this seems to occur. Teenagers are growing in their sleep. The lengthening of our bones occurs in our sleep. You know, when are you going to make a femur longer? It's when you're sleeping. So there's, they have increased need for sleep as we go along. Now, one of the things that happens is we know now that lack of sleep makes people impulsive. And then impulsivity seems to be a risk factor in suicidal thinking and suicidal behavior. The most common cause of death among our young people, college students and high school students, is car accidents and suicides. Both have been tied to lack of sleep. So these, this is why it's important. That's why in California, the law has been created to uh, allow students more time to sleep. So it's a good thing that they're sleeping more. A lot of the teenagers are sleeping better during the pandemic, and that shows you how stressful life can be in the Bay Area, where they're sleeping better during this time. A lot of the college students I meet, one of the things that happens when they take the Sleep and Dreams course is they let us know afterwards how much their life has changed because they're making sleep a priority in their lives, and it makes them feel better. Yes, you can get by with less sleep, but you'll be at your full potential. Your brain's going to function better with a full night of sleep. And we try to get our, our students sleep satiated. And it also improves not just their memory, but also the athletic performance. So this has been very important for us and just overall health. All right, we're going to give it back for sleep is like a bell curve. So we all have our sleep number. On average, people get about seven hours of sleep, but that ranges easily to where people, some people need much less sleep than that, and some people need much more. And so often married couples or people that are living with others try to set their sleep schedule based on their bed partner. And that's where things often break down because your bed partner could have a dramatically different need for sleep than you do. And that's one thing we just can't change. We have a biological sleep number, and that is what is controlled and set by your brain. And while that can vary by age, Within yourself, that number tends to stay the same. And so it's really, you can't teach yourself to need less sleep. All right, we're going to go to, uh, to Margaret Jean Regine in one second. We have one more question from the audience. Uh, Raphael, this question is from you, from Alan Skolnick. He wanted to know about napping. Uh, how, how does napping uh, 
help in this in this sleep process, and why does it feel so, that that twenty minute nap is so refreshing? So think of uh, napping like snacking. If you don't get enough, if you're not eating enough food, a snack is a good thing to do. If you're having, if you don't want to eat your dinner because you're not hungry, then a snack uh, would be a problem. Biologically, we have two chances to sleep. We can sleep in the evening, but we also have a chance to sleep in the afternoon. It correlates with the core body temperature. A little dip in our in our temperature is we get sleepy. The temperature comes up. We feel more awake. It correlates to how our predators hunt. The lions and tigers in the days that it's hottest, unless they get to attack us. And biologically, we get the surge of alertness in the evening. Before we we are most alert before we go to sleep. This is a biological thing that we have as humans. So a short nap can be restorative, just like a, like a, a snack can, can, can feel, uh, help you feel better. However, the nap should be short, less than 40 minutes. If the nap is longer than that, there's another phenomenon that comes into play called sleep inertia. We can wake up feeling groggy if you sleep at the wrong time and they get thrown off. So the military uh, pilots, commercial pilots, there are rules about napping. And this has actually been studied. So short naps make sense and they're restorative. If you're dreaming during a nap, that's that's a sure sign of sleep deprivation. Um, on the other hand, if you're sleep satiated and getting a full night of sleep on a regular basis, it's hard to fall asleep during a nap. But we have this biological opportunity to catch naps when we need to. We, ha- we need to be able to push off sleep under certain circumstances, right? There could be a fire, for example. You have to be able to avoid sleeping. You have to, how can a mother feed a baby every two to four hours if she needs to get eight hours of sleep herself? So the ability to push off sleep is built into our brains as a biological function, but also the ability to catch up sleep when it's safe. In the afternoon seems to be a safe time to sleep relative to the uh, rest of the 24-hour day because our predators are less likely to attack us. So a great chance to take a nap then. And our body, our body was designed to have two sleep periods. I mean, we were designed. That's why all of us have that moment of feeling groggy and sleepy in that early afternoon window after lunch. Your body is, was designed to have a nap then. That's where all the cultural siestas came from. So our social changes and our economic changes changed that strategy and so we weren't allowed to take our afternoon naps anymore it's not that our body doesn't want to we'd love to take a short afternoon nap around one sleep cycle length and then have a shorter sleep at night we don't do it so we force all of our sleep to be in the evening session and that's not the way our body was originally designed thank you all right, we're going to pivot now back to Margaret Jane Redeen. She is the Henry King Ransom Professor at Law at the University of Michigan Law School. She's also the author of Boilerplate, The Fine Print, Vanishing Rights, and the Rule of Law. Peggy, if you're there, please go ahead. I'm here. Thank you. Yes. Great. Here we go. In my book, yes, it's The Fine Print, Vanishing Rights, and the Rule of Law. The, t- the main title is Boilerplate. Um, what is the fine print? It, it occupies a purchase that's usually labeled terms and conditions, something like that. We don't read these terms. There's research on this, believe it or not. Even if you do read something, what does that mean? Does that mean you're bound to it? Do you have to understand what it means? Do most people who automatically click, I agree, understand what is meant by a forum selection clause? or any other legalese, it's pretty clear that people don't read these and don't really know what they mean. So now I want to talk for one minute about agreement. Agreement is the basis of contract. Contract is enforced 
by the government, by judges and so on, because it's designed to result in gains from trade. Contract depends upon actually agreement. You receive my bicycle and I give you money. And the actual agreement makes contract a social or a civil right open to everyone. The government takes care of copyright, takes care of contracts. It has to be watchful whether contracts are real or not. In the book, I called this the world of agreement. I called it World A in the book. But boilerplate is used by large corporations and other businesses. They can purposely compose for the business's advantage by lawyers for each side. So there's nothing wrong with that. And today, I'm only talking about World B, which is boilerplate used against consumers. I called it World B. Wasn't it nice how A and B came out in the book? (laughs) Anyway, Vanishing Rights and the Rule of Law are the subtitles. Vanishing Rights. What rights vanish in World B because of boilerplate? The right to receive merchandise in good condition as advertised. Delivery of damaged merchandise, boilerplate sex you accept as is. And if you click that and they think it's viable, then you're stuck with it. Specification of long-distance venues. So where are you going to go to court to test this? I've seen Grenada. I've seen Florida. I've seen the Netherlands. So then you get boilerplate disclaimers. Disclaiming physical injury by whoever you're you're entering into a contract with. What if the merchandise causes physical injury even if you use it properly? What if it hurts your elderly grandmother or your baby? There's inability to return damaged merchandise. Nobody answers the phone there. And there's the, the thing I call copycat boilerplate. What that is, that lots of firms copy the boilerplate from other firms and use the same boilerplate. It's not like they figure out a contract for themselves. They just, I know law students who, who've been hired to look at other firms' boilerplates for the summer job and, and copy it for whoever they're working for. So, so now if we have copycat boilerplate in one, in one, in one kind of, kind of product, then no competitors are available to avoid the same boilerplate. You can't go look somewhere else. And what if the purchased items don't function as promised? That's another nobody answers the phone one. So they don't really, nobody is hiring people so much anymore to help people who can't operate their computer. That's me. (laughs) Now, I wanted to talk about the three items in the book subtitle, the fine print, vanishing rights, and the rule of law. I just talked about the fine print, but I want to talk about the rule of law for a minute or two. This relates to the background features of social ordering. The right of redress is a feature of the rule of law in a democratic society. What is the right of redress? It means that you can go to the court or the government or something and get redress if if somebody's done you wrong in the law. If courts rule against consumers who have been damaged by boilerplate, 
what happens if those consumers have no other way to redress grievances? These courts are violating a basic premise of a society based upon law. They're, ex- they're excluding the right to redress. If they give you boilerplate that is held to be viable against you and there's nothing you can do to sue them for giving you something that doesn't work or hurt you or explodes and hurts your grandmother or your children, then it, then it, it is an undermining of democracy and the rule of law. So, Peggy, let me ask you a question right about that point. Um, sure, go ahead. Yeah, so we, you know, I guess just for the benefit for the audience, what we're really talking about is two things. One is when we go online and it says, you know, I click if you agree to this provision, otherwise you can't, you know, buy the product. And when you click, you give away in the terms and conditions all sorts of rights uh, of redress as you describe it. Uh, another way is you buy a product and you show up and this piece of paper falls out of the box. And in that box are also... Uh, contractual terms that you didn't even know about that limit your rights. Um, yeah. So I guess looking at it from two different perspectives, one from the consumer and then one from the producer, um, why is, are these terms enforceable at all? Why have courts decided that, that those are legitimate methods if, in fact, the courts suspect that there was no meeting of the minds and that the consumer was either oblivious, unaware, or it was almost universally unaware of these contractual terms. That's very interesting. If we think that unfair things are being done, it could happen. There, there, it could be decided by the, the um, Federal Trade Commission, which is supposed to prevent things that are unfair to consumers, but that organization never does anything for consumers trapped by boilerplate. Now, the courts have have begun, have pretty well enforced what's in the boilerplate. Um, some of it, you're saying, why are we being, why are we being forced to no, actually, why are, why are courts enforcing uh, provisions that they suspect where there was no meaning of the minds, where the consumer was either unaware or oblivious or did not understand uh, these contractual terms, when the courts know that 100 million people yes. clicked the, the box, but nobody read those provisions? Yes. Well, they know that, but conservative judges who I don't agree with got started with this, and it became part of the legal background. A conservative judge from Chicago wrote one of the famous cases in this matter, and it gets cited every time. So I, I disagree. I'm not a conservative judge. <laughs> and so why do you suspect that the liberal judges continue to agree with that? Who was the conservative judge? Was it Easterbrook or somebody? Yes. So, Definitely Easterbrook. So when Easterbrook made that famous opinion, why, why did the liberal justices concur with Easterbrook's conclusion that the boilerplate should be enforceable? They seem to follow, you know, judges seem to follow what went before. If it becomes what what happens in law, you've got another lawyer with you today. <laughs> what happens in law is that you get you get things that happened before that have to be done again. They follow the the, the they follow the 
they follow what happened before. They they follow the law of the before. It's going to be hard to change this. Mm-hmm. And a lot. This is and and various people who who like to do law and economics have written things that this is really good that works well because it makes the products cheaper and then it gives some. It gives some. It makes the companies have more money, which is better for them. It's not better for the consumers, but they're talking about the the whole outlay, out the whole amount of money in the economy. So that's what they mean. Can I ask a question? Good. So why did why did Easterbrook do this? He's he's. It's a very famous case. Um, he really gave a he gave a great um, he in that in that case he gave a he gave a great um, prologue on law and economics, <laughs> and all the law students have to read it still. Well, Peggy, um, Peggy, this is Rick Banks. So let me let me just to, to pick up on that, um, you know, because I can I, I I see your your claim, and I'm also troubled by the fact that people are giving away rights that they should have, right, to go to court and pursue their claim when something bad happens. But I'm also struck right, by the yeah. fact that, that people don't seem to be too worked up about it. Um, like, I mean, there's no, you know, broad-based citizen outcry for boilerplate uh, or, or rather against yeah. boilerplate in the same way there is with respect to privacy and information sharing in the case of social media companies, for example. So what do we make of that lack of citizen outcry? Does that mean that this isn't really a problem or are people just unaware of the significance of the problem? Um, some unaware of what this means because nobody reads it and they they don't know what it takes away. However, I think this is something that has to do with the the level of how how popular it is. So there's some there's some psychological research done by somebody in Pennsylvania faculty of law which says that people anytime something is called a, a contract they believe it. So she did some experiments where you had contracts that were just awful and just regular things that didn't prevent pretend they were a contract and she said people tend to believe in contracts so that's very interesting psychologically there is some research on this stuff why do people sign it people sign it and they know perfectly well that they don't know what it means but they think that they're okay home free it's not going to happen to me you know do you think that there is a societal uh corporate good behavior that exists in other words let's say that um apple knew that they give for their new iPhones a 35-page boilerplate that basically takes away all the consumers' rights. Um, And let's imagine there's a problem, okay? Does Apple recognize that it has an ongoing business and therefore won't be able to take advantage of all these provisions? Are they going to be a good corporate actor because of their concerns or reputation? Why do they behave the way they do? Most cases of, I'll call it, things that go wrong never end up in court. They sort of, um, they sort of do the, if you will, they do the right thing because they know they have to be in business tomorrow. Do you think that is this boilerplate really important or not? Well, I think it is. 
people just give up quickly. And if you go talk to a lawyer, he'll say, well, there's this clause. If you want me to fight that, it's going to be much more expensive. So it, it doesn't work very well to try and take these to law. And um, every once in a while, somebody wins one of these. Um, an interesting case was just one in Canada against Uber. They were trying to make the Uber drivers um, have a have a thing that made them go. They couldn't get any any redress unless they went to the Netherlands and paid five thousand dollars, and that was too much for the Supreme Court of Canada. So they that one was won by the Uber drivers. But that that's it's very rare to win these, and one of the reasons. Then it's rare to win this because run-of-the-mill lawyers don't accept cases that are going to take a lot of time and, and worry about previous cases that by Judge Eacherbrook or, or Judge Posner or whoever, you know. And so I don't I could, actually – I can't answer the question very well, but I'm trying. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Uh, why don't we do this? Um, we're getting towards the end of our program, and what I'd like to do – at the end is go around the room and ask for points of optimism. Um, during this pandemic, we generally focus on the negative, and I, I just like to think about it a little bit more positively. So, Peggy, why don't I start with you? What are you optimistic about? I'm Peggy, optimistic that, yeah. yes, I, I'm optimistic that there, I think there is developing in, in um, and some of the people that got elected to Congress, some pushback against some stuff like this. And if we were ever ma able to make this illegal, if we ever could make the, 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 the committee, the, the Federal Trade Commission to ever look seriously at this stuff. I know I, friends of mine, have tried to argue this stuff for a federal trade commission, but they don't have people who are even interested in it. So I think it may be that with with new people in Congress, it may be that we could get this to look to be looked at, because it it really violates the rule of law. What we're supposed to do, we're supposed to have in a democratic society, we're supposed to have redress. And they are trying, these things are trying to take it away. And they seem to be succeeding a lot of places. Okay. Uh, Steve Burton, what are you optimistic about? Well, COVID casts a deep, sharp, dark shadow on a lot of things, but one positive outcome has been the impact on healthcare and sleep, and that there's been a shift in access where even the sleep specialists who were the last holdouts against home testing are now shifting in mass to home tests. And in a common sleep center I speak to is now doing, whereas they used to only do 10% of their tests at home, are doing virtually 90% of their tests at home. And that's really improved the access of patients who can sleep in their own bed during a sleep test. That's been a, a really good positive outcome. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Raphael, what are you optimistic about? I will co we'll come back to Raphael in a second. Uh, Carl Smith, what are you what are you optimistic about? Sorry. Uh, thank you. First of all, let me let me just yeah, I'm here. Sorry. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was Raphael. on mute. Go. Let Raphael speak. Go ahead, Carl. You seem excited to go right ahead. I'm, I'm, I should go ahead. 
Yes, Carl. Thank you. I'm sorry. First of all, I misspoke before but I, when I said smallpox in the 19th century, I meant cholera. Forgive me. Um, I think that there is every reason to think that assuming that a uh, vaccine is found, that, that cities will rebound. They will not be the same. Uh, but I think they have too many things going for them uh, to be counted out. Uh, but it, it, uh, these things are always complicated. Okay, Raphael, why don't you go ahead? What are you optimistic about? Good, thank you. I think the societies uh, now view, use the importance of sleep more so than ever. It was a curiosity to be a sleep medicine physician when I first started, and now it's established. The, the beauty is that now there are better treatments than ever for sleep, and they're more in the pipeline. So there's no reason anybody should ever sleep poorly. Sleep is the ultimate form of self-care, and it's available to all of us. So people have to start thinking about that they get to sleep, that, that they have to sleep, and that's good news for all of us. Thank you. Stephen Mulroy, are you still with us? And if so, are you optimistic? Uh, uh, yes, I'm still with you, and I guess I can say this in the theme of optimism. We had an unprecedented uh, pandemic-induced spike in mail ballot requests that people feared was going to overwhelm the system because we didn't have time to adjust, and yet the election administrators handled it okay. We had significant years of voter suppression tactics, and yet we had absolute record-breaking high levels of voter participation in this election. And we had a coordinated attempt um, by people at the highest levels of government with all their powers and the bully pulpit to try to cast doubt on the integrity of this election process. And while the jury's still out on that, I'll note that the media and social media, even Fox News, has done a pretty good job of pushing back on that and expressing the pro proper level of skepticism. So I guess what I'm trying to say with these different points converging is, Despite the many, many challenges we have in our election system, the entire system itself, political election administration, media, and otherwise, seems to have an underlying resilience. Thank you. Uh, Monica you Gandhi, if positive. you're still with us. Um, I am still with you. you. You're the one that started this thing out. Um, we have a pandemic. Um, you suggested we use the masks. What are you optimistic about? <laughs> So I'm really optimistic that um, that people will stop fighting the mask. Um, I know it's it's weird and it's unusual, but I do think that um, we can do it for a little while. I think it's, uh, as Dr. Redfield said on September 16th to the Senate, I think it's probably the most important pillar to protect ourselves until we get to a vaccine. I am positive that with more unified messaging that we're all going to get better on the same page about doing what we need to do to help control the pandemic. And then I'm positive about the power of science and we're going to get there and we're going to get through this. All right. All right. With that, I want to give a quick plug alert for our program next week. Uh, the subject will be uh, China. And, and this time it's going to be kind of a U.S., India, Japan, and Australian uh, acting together to contain Chinese military and economic power. That will be the subject of three speakers. Uh, we're going to have Jay Levy, also I believe from UCSF. Uh, Monica, I don't know if you know Jay, but he's going to be speaking uh, about um, whether or not you should take the vaccine. Uh, and then we're going to also have subjects in labor economics. We're going to have John Haltwanger from the University of Maryland and Casey Mulligan from the University of Chicago. And uh, John is going to talk about uh, 
the rapid rise in corporate business formation, and Casey Mulligan will talk about the problems of a stimulus uh, and encouraging people not to go to work. All right, with that, that ends uh, today's session. I very much would like to thank our speakers for their time and energy in a fascinating discussion, and thank you, but also to my listeners for their participation and interest. Uh, We will see you again next week. That's it. It's a wrap. Thanks again to everyone, my co-host Mitch and Rick as well. Uh, You can hang up now. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You're very welcome.